finished talking about Gideon, we can move on to the next major figure in the Book of Judges, Abimelech. And Abimelech is what you could call an anti-judge, because whereas all the other judges that were talked about were doing the will of God, Abimelech very much does not do the will of God. He's got his own agenda, he's got his own methods, his own plan, and it goes against what the will of God would be. And so Abimelech is not just some random person, he is actually one of Gideon's sons. So Gideon got married to a lot of women, which was not uncommon during that time, even though it still went against the will of God. And one of the people that Gideon had a son with was a woman who was his concubine, so his servant. And she was from the town of Shechem. Now, Shechem was a city that belonged to the tribe of Ephraim. And if you remember, the Ephraimites were the ones that Gideon called to help him rout the Midianite kings, and they were very upset with him that they weren't invited in the beginning of the battle. They weren't invited for that first charge into the Midianite camp because they wanted that position of honor. And we see that that same theme being shown through the actions of Abimelech, this desire for honor and for this good position. So with that in mind, let's begin reading in Judges chapter 9, Starting at verse 1, it says that Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, who is Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all seventy of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, and they said, He is related to us. So we see Abimelech begin making this push to make himself king. And the way that he does it is honestly quite deceitful. Because he asks this question, you know, which is better, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? And in that question, there's already a false assumption being made. Because remember, Gideon said that he would not rule over the Israelite people, nor would any of his sons rule over the Israelite people. And we see no indication that any of Gideon's sons at this point was trying to be keen or, and trying to rule over the Israelite people. And yet Abimelech asked the question of, you know, which is better to have all of them ruling over you or to have me rule over you? And so he kind of makes this assumption and bases his argument off this assumption that Gideon's sons are going to rule over Israel. And it's because of that lie that he is then be able to make this division where he tells them, remember, I am your flesh and blood. So not only does he say, look, there's going to be this vie for power and, and we need to have somebody leading us, but... Also, if somebody's going to lead you, wouldn't you prefer it be somebody that that's related to you? Someone who looks like you? Someone you're close with? Somebody you can really be pals with, get along with? Wouldn't you prefer somebody like that over than any of these other guys? And it's because of that 
that we see they really connect to that because they go out and they say, oh yeah, we should follow Abimelech because he's related to us. And so Abimelech, he's really pushing this us and them mentality that's all based on this lie that somebody is going to be ruling over the Israelites at all, that some man, some person is going to be ruling over them. And so before there's any conflict at all, he kind of creates this conflict early. He does the preemptive strike, as it were, in order to get everybody over to his side. And he's really creating this division between the Israelite people, between the people of Shechem and everybody else. And we see him create that division in order to further his own agenda and that exact same thing is what eventually becomes his own downfall. This division that he causes, we see that eventually that division kind of comes back to bite him. If we go further down to verse 26, after Abimelech has already made himself the leader of Israel for three years, we see this happen. It says, Now Gael, son of Ebed, moved with his clan into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they had a festival in the temple of their god. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gael son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech, and why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son, and isn't Zebul his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. So here we see this Gael, son of Ebed, making the same argument that Abimelech was making before. Abimelech who says, I'm your flesh and blood. I'm related to you. Surely you can count on me. You can trust me to lead you. But then after he's gone and leading, Gael comes in and says, well, hold on a second. Abimelech, he's Gideon's son. He's Jeroboam's son. What, what does he have to do with any of us? Why should we be subject to him? And so that division is being made that Abimelech wants to use. He used that division to get everybody on his side. Now that same division is being used in order to overthrow him. And so we see these seeds that Abimelech planted that that's the same kind of fruit. The fruit of those seeds is what he's now having to eat. That the division he caused is now the division that is leading to him being overthrown. And it really kind of brings me back to the golden rule, right? In Matthew seven twelve, where it says, In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This idea that we should be treating people in the same way that we want to be treated that New Testament teaching is seen being taken place here in Judges chapter 9. That Abimelech is treating people in this way where he's creating division, and we see that same thing being used against him. And so this is just a good reminder for us to remember to treat other people the way that we want to be treated as well, and make sure that we're not doing things like creating division and having this us-and-them mentality, because eventually people are going to be treating us in that same way. So we need to be careful and watchful of how we're treating other people 
And is it the way we want to be treated as well? So let's continue on. Uh, if we go back up to verse 4, right after he's having everybody go out and kind of rally his troops together, it says in verse 4, they gave him, talking about to Abimelech, 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Bareth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. So here we see Abimelech escalating the situation even more. At first, there was no conflict, and then he preemptively makes this conflict so he can get people on his side. But that wasn't enough for him, because he really didn't want to have to compete with his brothers to be named king. And so his solution was to just kill his brothers in order to remove any competition at all. And then nobody would be challenging him to be king. And so what Abimelech wanted to do here was to completely silence any kind of opposition that he might face, so that he could remain unchallenged. You see, this is really revealing of Abimelech's character and also of his understanding, albeit very little, of his situation. Because if Abimelech truly believed that he was fit to rule these people and that he was the best choice for the job, then he wouldn't have had to do this. He could have just made the arguments, this is why I should be your king. This is why I would be better than any of my brothers. I'm the best pick for the job, and this is why. But instead, he was so fearful of that opposition. He was so fearful of being challenged in those ways that he wanted to make sure that he could be able to do and say whatever he wanted to without it being challenged. And so he killed his brothers to completely silence the opposition forever. And it's really the same mentality that is used today and, and has been used throughout history of banning or burning books. That people are fearful of that opposition, of, of any kind of counter-argument to what they want to say and the narrative that they want to push, that they make sure that people can't hear any other side of the argument. They can't hear any counterpoints. And so books will often be banned or burned so that that history and those, that teaching, that understanding can be done away with so that whatever that person wants to push forward, they can do so unchallenged. And I think we need to be really careful that we in the church don't take this same kind of approach when it comes to false teaching. I think usually whenever there's any kind of false teaching that pops up uh, within church or even just in media or entertainment or anything, usually if there's false teaching being presented, the way the church tends to react is to silence that. And to make sure that nobody hears it, because they don't want anybody being led astray, so we got to make sure that they don't hear about it, they don't think about it, we, we got to cut it off at the source. 
And although it's true that we need to protect ourselves from false teaching, I don't think that is a helpful way of approaching it. Because if you silence the opposition, then usually what that's going to do is just make people more curious about it. Right? It's just like if you tell a kid not to do something, like don't eat that cookie, all they're going to be thinking about is eating that cookie. They, they want to know, well, why can't I have this? Why can't I go here? Why can't I know about this? It's going to consume their mind. And when we do that with false teaching, we say, oh, oh, you can't listen to that. You, I don't want you to be led astray. I don't want you questioning things. I don't want you thinking about that. So, and so we try to cover it up so that they don't hear anything about it. All that does is cause them to look into it behind our backs. And that's not helpful. It's not helpful to just silence opposition. The way you need to address it is to expose it for what it is. To expose the false teaching. So then you can say, look, I understand this is what someone is teaching. This is what they are saying. These are the arguments that they are making. And then say, and these are the problems with it. This is why it doesn't work. These are the mistakes that can be found in it. These are the destructive consequences of following this kind of belief. And when you can do that, then you're really pulling it up by its roots to fully expose the rottenness inside. And that is going to be so much more effective at bringing people to truth than to just try to cover it up. But the more Abimelech tried to just silence any kind of opposition and remove any kind of competition to his agenda, we see it not working. We have Jotham, Gideon's youngest son, who escapes, and I'm not going over it today, but you should look it up. He goes into this whole parable about how Abimelech is a terrible choice. And even as we did read about, as Gail comes up and he challenges Abimelech, and people are quick to say, oh, I haven't thought about this. Oh, you have a point. Rather than Abimelech saying, this is why I should be king. These are the qualifications that I have. And really going for transparency rather than trying to just shut out any competition. And we can never remove all voices of dissent. There will always be a fight back, especially if what we're doing is terrible. But when you haven't prepared people to hear voices of dissent, when you haven't prepared, especially children growing up, especially if you have kids, this is so important, that you teach them not only what to believe, but why they believe it, and the problems that are found within the teachings of the rest of the world, and expose that bad teaching for the bad teaching that it is, unless you prepare them for that, they're going to be so easily swept away by whatever they hear. And we need to make sure that we're on guard with that too. That we're not just closing off our ears to what anybody else says because, well, we don't know about that and, and that sounds different than what I believe and, you know, I'm, that just makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to hear about that. 
then we become completely unprepared to deal with that false teaching. The answer isn't to silence it, to cover it up. The answer is to expose it for the evil that it is. That needs to be our approach. So now let's look at how this ends for Abimelech. He has to take his people out and, and attack those who are coming against him. And we see the conclusion of this begin in verse 50. It says, Next Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly he called to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and kill me, so they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. I think Abimelech's death here gives us such a clear look into the attitude of his heart. That he's attacking these people, and a woman throws down a millstone, hits his head, cracks his skull. And his thoughts are not, get me to safety, it's not maybe I can recover from this, it's not even my time has come, it's, hey you, Hurry up and kill me so they can't say that a woman killed me. The very last thing he's thinking about and talking about is how he's going to look to other people. And he's worried that people are going to mock him and his legacy. And during these last few seconds of his life, that's what he's focused on, is how he's going to look to other people. And really throughout his whole life, but especially as seen in this part here, I think we see that Abimelech really wanted to just preserve appearances. His whole pursuit of kinship is based on that exact same thing. That us and them mentality. Look, we, we're the people of Shechem, and, and they're not the people of Shechem, and so we've got to look out for our own. Right? we got to make sure that we look good, that we appear strong. Just like how all the Ephraim people did with Gideon. Well, we wanted to join in the charge so that we could have that position of honor, and why didn't you invite us to the battle? Now you've made us look bad. That's the same mentality that Abimelech has. I don't want to look bad. I don't want people to know that a woman killed me. Look, we're the people of Shechem. Let, let me be your leader so that, after all, you know, we're related and I can take care of you and we'll take care of our own. And, oh, if other people are going to challenge me, well, I better kill them so nobody thinks any less of me. And then once nobody opposes me, then we'll all be good and everything will look okay and feel okay and be okay. That's all he's concerned about, is keeping up these outward appearances and making sure that that's preserved. That's what led to him wanting to be king, was so that he could look good, he could be in charge. That's how he persuaded people to join his cause, was in causing that division. All of it had to do 
with keeping up appearances. And that is such a minor, minuscule thing when compared to what is actually important, and especially what is important in the eyes of God. There are so many passages of Scripture that highlight that it's not the outward appearances that matter. What matters is the condition of our heart. And where is that at? Let me give a few just for example. Luke 6.45 says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jeremiah 17.10 I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind, to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And Matthew 23, 27 and 8, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That scolding applies so well to Abimelech. Sure, you're a king. Sure, you've led the Israelites for three years. But you had to do it unchallenged because you killed all your brothers. And you're so com- so concerned with how you appear to other people that it's going to lead to your demise. See, Abimelech judged on the wrong things. He judged on outward things rather than inward things. And again, this is another good reminder for us to focus on what actually matters. Not on outward, but on inward. And emphasizing the act of keeping our hearts clean our hearts pure, our hearts aligned with God's heart. And making sure that we're not just going through the actions, we're not just doing the things that we're supposed to do when there's turmoil and death on the inside, but making sure that our hearts are right with God so that everything else can fall in line afterwards. Because if our hearts are aligned with God's heart, if our hearts are in the right place, we're going to pursue truth and expose false teaching. And we're going to treat people the way that God would treat them, which is also the way that we would want to be treated. It all comes back to the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the heart is what the Lord examines. So I leave us with this question today. Does your heart pursue truth and unity? Not just are you going through the actions of it, but in your heart, in your attitude, are those things that you desire? Do you desire the pursuit of truth? Or do you just want to be content with what you think and what you believe and what you feel and silence every other voice? Are you seeking and desiring unity with others? Or are you trying to sow more division, which will eventually lead its way back to you?
Does your heart pursue truth and unity? Do not be like Abimelech. We saw what that got him, and it wasn't good. And that's today's Sermon in the Pocket. As always, if you have any comments or questions for me, feel free to contact me either through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page, or you can email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And I encourage you to like this podcast, rate it, do all of those things that help get it out for everyone else to see, to help spread the message. But until next time, I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day, and I thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you.